new political movements, migration and failing mainstream parties. All of this has come together over a long period of time and are now the foremost challenges in Europe. New parties have come into parliament all across the spectrum. Thus, mainstream parties are in best cases struggling, where in some instances, like the French Socialist Party, has totally collapsed. Welcome to Radio Utblick. My name is Gustav Nyqvist. In this episode, we look back on the most recent years of national elections in the European Union and what those developments mean for Europe. Radio Utblick spent the better part of last year's episodes diving into those national elections around Europe, talking to voters and political scientists. Looking around Europe today, Euroscepticism is at an all-time high and puts Europe at a crossroad. There is of course Brexit, and what is to come is not at all clear. Actors on both sides are sitting on their hands, waiting for the end result. A little more than a year ago, I met up with Jonathan Polk at Center for European Research at Gothenburg University. We met to discuss the national election then happening in the Netherlands. Now I went back to Jonathan as he was organizing a conference on European studies in political science to follow up on what has been going on since our meeting a year ago. What are the trends and what is he expecting from the Swedish election this fall based on these past elections? John, we we had an uh, an important year last year in Europe uh, with a lot of national elections, uh, especially the French, the the British one, and the German uh, German election. We and we met up and talked about the Dutch election. Mm-hmm. And there has been a handful of uh, other national elections so far. And we just the other week had an election in Hungary, and before that, an election in Italy. And I and I guess you could say that all of these past elections are significant because they all show a tendency to uh, a divide inside the European Union in their own specific way. Let's call them uh, challenges for the European Union as a theme for why we are here, you and I, talking. I'm thinking of mainstream parties falling. National conservatism is uh, becoming wider and uh, Euroscepticism as a whole is, is on the rise. I thought we'd talk about the Swedish election first. Mm-hmm. Because that's what's uh, what's coming up. From what you've seen uh, the last couple of years in Europe, are you expecting something particular from the Swedish election? I think from what we've seen in the most recent elections in Europe, uh, there's been a rather large amount of electoral volatility, so changing in vote share, and there's been a fragmentation of party systems, so that parties that used to be quite large are smaller in terms of their overall electoral support and smaller parties are gaining. Uh, To some degree, this makes it more difficult to form governments uh, after the election takes place. We saw that to some extent in 2014, and I would expect that there's a similar complication potentially on the horizon after 2018 as well. So uh, the post-electoral dynamics of government formation, I think, is an increasingly challenging and important thing to understand in the Swedish context, but across most European party-based democracies as well. Uh, We saw a total demise of the Socialist Party in France, for instance, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a a broad movement on Marche in uh, in France, but there is 
not really something uh, comparable in Sweden. We have our own predicament with the national conservatism or uh, far-right extremism with the Sweden Democrats and also a new party for the upcoming election, Alternative for Sweden, like uh, kind of uh, connected to the AFD, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. How do you expect the mainstream parties dealing with the, the election this fall? Is it the same as last time around? Because it's more or less the same situation four years ago in Sweden. Are you seeing something something new? Well, at least to me, one of the most conspicuous things I've seen in the, uh, the, the pre-electoral campaign so far is the emphasis by the social democratic government uh, to make law and order and various other aspects of integration a centerpiece of their electoral campaign. Uh, it's a somewhat risky strategy because historically those issues and topics are more readily associated with uh, center-right parties, such as the moderates and various others like this. And so it's not necessarily playing the game on uh, social democracy's home turf, so to speak. But I think it's a pretty clear indication the extent to which questions of border security, migration, immigration policy have become such a salient uh, issue within Swedish society and an indication that that's something that can't really be avoided in the in the uh, the upcoming campaign. So there was uh, a big thing last election in Sweden where you found um, the situation that is also very common across Europe now that you have while the mainstream parties are declining they're becoming increasingly difficult to form governments mm. and in this Swedish scenario four years ago you had the December agreement to try and um, make a government work where there is no majority. So they decided not to fail each other's budget in the parliament. And that lasted for a year, maybe. The fact that it's becoming more and more difficult to form governments, is that something you think is going to change over time, over the short period of time in Europe? Or do you think it's a kind of a new normal? Because we've seen it not only in, in Sweden four years ago, we've seen it. It took the Dutch a very long time to form a government. It took Germany a long time to form a government. And it's, uh, it's becoming maybe more of a trend, like, is it a new normal, basically? Yeah, I, my, 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 my anticipation is that it's very much a new normal for, for at least a few reasons. Uh, as, we, as we already highlighted, uh, it's both about the decline in vote share of the formerly large formator parties. So there are less strong players in terms of the negotiation at the outset, and there are more actors because there are a larger number of smaller parties that are getting uh, votes as well. But I think you also need to think about it in the context of uh, the internal democracy of parties as well, and the push for more internal democracy. Uh, if I remember correctly, the December agreement to some extent fell apart because of a vote on the internal um, pol policy by the Christian Democratic Party members, right? So even a fairly small party overall and an even smaller group of people within that party, the members, were able to bring down this entire agreement, more or less. And if you reflect on the government formation process in Germany, most recently, the Social Democrats also put to their voters whether or not there should be yet another grand coalition, I'm sorry, not to their voters, but to their members, whether or not there should be another grand coalition. And although that ended up being quite decisively in favor of the grand coalition, in the run-up to the actual membership vote, there was a lot of uncertainty within pundits and researchers as 
as to whether or not the members of the SPD would actually be in, in favor of this. So parties are to some extent constrained both in terms of their interaction with one another, in terms of the number of veto players involved with the negotiation process and government formation, but they also have constraints internally in that there's a lot of pressure for them to give more voice to the members as membership numbers decline throughout Europe, right? So uh, I very much think that the new normal will be challenging government formation processes, and we need to be creative about how to uh, move forward with that. And I think it's more pressing for countries like Germany that don't have a history of minority government, whereas Sweden, which has more of an extensive history with that sort of uh, practice, is in a better position vis-a-vis government formation, yeah. If we talk about how big of a challenge is this nationally for a country, being not having a strong government, basically, and uh, how big of an issue is it for European Union not having strong governments within the Union to basically do the European project together? Yeah, I, so it's starting to get outside of my realm of, 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 of specific expertise. But I mean, you can certainly see that there's a striking difference between not having a government in a country where there's a strong tradition of bureaucratic competence and endurance between uh, governments, right? Uh, Belgium seems to function fairly well, even during the times in which they have rather extensive government formation processes, because to some degree, the bureaucracy functions rather smoothly, independent of the government. I think it's probably much more of a challenge as it relates to setting EU policy, which, as you know, is rather complicated because of the extensive number of veto players and the diversity of interests that are involved. And I think the German government formation process and the relationship between Germany and France in moving the EU forward uh, post-Brexit referendum is is a fairly clear idea of of how that can be complicated, right? Uh, It's difficult for Macron to put forward any kind of a kind of vision for Franco-Germanic cooperation in the next steps of integration when it's unclear to him and to other EU actors who will in fact be at the negotiating table from the German side, right? So the uncertainty surrounding uh, governments in uh, core EU and Eurozone member states like Germany over that time period and Italy to some degree now really does make it complicated and difficult to advance uh, policy ideas that on the best case scenario still frequently take several years to actually get implemented because of the complexities of the EU policymaking process. So if uh, mainstream parties declining and um, weaker governments are definitely one challenge for the European Union and the national uh, the countries in the in the union some benign compared to a more problematic situation facing the EU that not everyone wants to be part of the EU anymore. And the United Kingdom has left the Union. That is one of the most debated challenges for Europe at the moment, because it's the first time it happens. Getting, is it getting more clear almost two years in after Brexit what Brexit actually means for the European Union? No, at least it's not to me getting any more clear what Brexit means for the European Union. Uh, I think there's a there's a widespread recognition that Brexit was uh, is was an extraordinarily significant event that will have ramifications for the European Union and for the United Kingdom for for years to come. But there is still so much uncertainty uh, surrounding 
the specifics of the negotiations and the agreement that will be uh, uh, arrived at ultimately, that it's hard for me to say what the long-term ramifications would be specifically. Um, yeah, that's where I would stay with that. So I was here like a couple of weeks ago talk, listening to um, the Center for European Research when they talked about Brexit. Mm. Uh, and it's basically everyone is, I wouldn't say freaking out because researchers and scientists, they don't freak out, but it's... it's Quiet. a it's quietly freak out. Yeah, they, exactly. That's maybe the word. They're, they're quietly freaking out because because of the process of Brexit. How is that process actually going? Because in 11 months' time, Brexit is supposed to be done, more or less. At least the agreement is supposed to be done. How, how is it going so far? It's hard, hard for me to say uh, in particular and that I don't have any privileged information beyond what's available to, uh, to the public more generally. But I think the fact that they were able to kind of extend this time period in which there would be a kind of post-Brexit uh, status quo is an indication that at the very least there is uh, that things are not as advanced as they might have hoped that they would have been uh, at this point. I think to some degree, Theresa May is very much hamstrung uh, by the complexities of her own intra-party politics in the UK, as well as uh, the, the, the additional complexities of um, of United Kingdom politics, right? Dealing with the, the, the questions of borders in Northern Ireland and, and, and Ireland. And so uh, there are, of course, substantial number of moving parts, and I think it's pretty widely recognized that every everything has been a little bit later than anticipated. So uh, it's a slower process than uh, people might have expected at the outset, although I think it's hard to have had concrete expectations for how this would go because it's such an unprecedented change. Is it the biggest failure of European politics since, since the Rome Treaty, basically? the call to even consider a vote leaving Brexit and then Theresa May calling a re-election. I mean, how, how, what's the magnitude of this, this situation we're in? I guess to me, it's a little, I'm a little bit harder pressed to place responsibility on the European Union than the United Kingdom. Uh, the referendum in the first place was the product of inter-party divisions and uh, David Cameron's attempts to sort of satisfy backbenchers within his own uh, his own party. I think the expectation was never that it would have uh, resulted in the outcome that it did. Uh, and then the complexities of most of the negotiations, I think, primarily stem from 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 British politics more so than, than than EU politics. But but I'm not certain about that. One thing I think that's important to keep in mind as it relates to successes and failures for the European Union is that uh, I would say potentially one of the more pressing and 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 serious issues facing the European Union now that gets a little bit less attention than Brexit is uh, what's going on in Central and Eastern Europe with some of the member states that are at this point. Uh, uh, rather clearly backsliding as it relates to fundamental values related to the European Union and the uh, either incapacity or unwillingness to address this from within the European institutions up to this point, right? We've, we've, we've talked previously about uh, this as it relates to Poland, and then the most recent elections in Hungary are, are only further uh, magnifying and amplifying the importance of uh, thinking about how the European Union deals with um, 
the processes of internal politics of the European Union rather than external relations. Yes, um, Viktor Orban won again, and he's even gained a few seats, and he keeps his qualified majority in his parliament to make changes in the in the constitution and so forth. And it, this is maybe the most outspoken Euroscepticism besides Brexit, uh, because it's it's more of a core value in the European Union as uh, what comes after nationalism. The European Union is the practical example of what comes after nationalism, post-nationalism. That's the, that's a new way of government. Mm. How is the sentiment in Hungary? Because they are a big beneficiary in within the European Union, one of the biggest beneficiaries of the European uh, system uh, when it comes to uh, financial benefits. How big of a sentiment is it in Hungary to leave the European Union? Yeah, I, I hesitate to put forward too much in the way of specifics because I don't have uh, public opinion polling numbers in front of me or anything along these lines. But I think it's fairly clear from both uh, the statements of Orban as well as law and justice in Poland that neither of these uh, parties are advocating wholesale withdrawal from the European Union. As you as you mentioned, uh, there are substantial financial benefits that both countries have received from EU membership. Uh, so I don't think that either uh, government is advocating departure from the EU. What they are, in fact, pushing for is a fundamentally different conception of what the European Union is and how the institutions in Brussels interact with the member state governments and where the locus of power resides and how much autonomy the member states have in particular areas of policy and things along these lines. If Hungary is a, a, an example of a national conservatism on the rise and even authoritarianism on the rise, how, how, how big of a rise is this on the European level? What's, what's the, does this increase sentiment all across the board to, to favor national conservatism particularly? Or we might not be there quite yet to a, a, a increased in sentiment for authoritarianism. But it's definitely visible. You know, uh, in our last conversation, we talked a little bit about the the Dutch election and how the uh, the, the rhetoric and campaign talking points of uh, Geert Wilders' party, the PVV, was something that was. Uh, to some degree, picked up on by a few of the more mainstream parties as well. And I think we saw similar dynamics in the Austrian election, where the FPO is now the junior coalition partner with the major center-right party, uh, and the major center-right party there, to some degree, re not necessarily repositioned itself wholesale, but certainly attempted to undercut the electoral position of the FPO by taking on some of those same uh, kind of policy ideas. And uh, I think we can see that to some extent as well in some of the data that I've collected more recently with, with colleagues of mine. Uh, we have an expert survey where we ask political scientists to place parties on a variety of policies and dimensions across different European countries. And between 2014 and 2017, there was an increase in the salience, so the importance of anti-elite, anti-establishment rhetoric for 
parties that are part of the party family of the conservatives and the Christian Democrats, so the mainstream center-right parties. Historically, the levels of anti-elite rhetoric have been quite high for the parties on what we call the radical right, uh, although like I think that might not be entirely the best nomenclature for it. It's more probably appropriate to say the anti-immigrant kind of nationalist right, so to speak, rather than economic right. Um, So it's been high within that party family for quite a while, but we see an uptick in the salience of this type of rhetoric for the more mainstream parties between 2014 and 2017, which does seem to suggest that there's at least the possibility of a little bit of contagion, right, of that type of, a, of an attitude within the more mainstream parties than there once was. Yeah, this is, of course, extremely hard to evaluate. Are you expecting uh, these national conservativist parties or extreme right parties evening out around 15% of the electoral base? Uh, like we might predict in the, the Swedish election, because they, the, the national conservative parties across Europe has been gaining a lot of seats over the, over the last 20 years or so. I mean, that's like the time span, at least in the beginning of the 1990s, we had this uh, new kind of uh, movement of extreme right parties. They became normalized, put on suits, mm. uh, and they've been steadily gaining seats in the parliament. Are they evening out around 15%? Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm hesitant to suggest that there's a that there's a particular plateau that uh, that these parties would reach and then and stop. I think if you if you look for example at Hungary, right, and you were to combine the vote share of Fidesz and Jobbik, that is well over 50 percent for what you can say is fairly clearly authoritarian nationalist policy principles being put into place. One thing that I think does at least relate to the to the to the idea and the question you were asking initially is reflecting on Sweden and the Sweden Democrats. It's difficult to grow as a party. Uh, one of the more complicated things to do as a party is maintain discipline and the capacity to unite multiple factions within a group that becomes ever more challenging as the party gets larger. And so I think to some degree the move for there to be something like an alternative for Sweden here in uh, Sweden and the division that's caused within the Sweden Democrats is indicative of these kind of growing pains, right? Once you reach a certain kind of electoral size, it becomes uh, challenging to maintain cohesiveness within the the parliamentary group, so to speak. Uh, So that does make it difficult to get beyond a certain electoral threshold. Um, But I don't think that's an impossibility necessarily. Some people spend a lot of their time thinking about Euroscepticism, and Catherine de Vries at the University of Essex is one of those researchers doing just that. Catherine is also an associate member of Nuffield College at Oxford University, and her new book Euroscepticism and the Future of European Integration was published with Oxford University Press. While visiting Gothenburg to give a keynote lecture at a conference on European studies, I had a chance to speak with her about her work and Euroscepticism. You talk about Europe is at a crossroad. What is that crossroad? So the crossroad is, I guess, that the problem pressure, so the way to deal with uh, very varied member states that have different economic fates, different political fates, um, is very difficult to do. But at this moment in time, what you also see is that within domestic 
context, so in, in national elections, there are uh, very strong anti-EU parties, there is e anti-EU sentiment developing. So European solutions that basically are needed in order to deal with problems like the Eurozone or climate change or like basically um, issues that, that are not only national but that transcend borders, that European solutions are extremely unpopular among uh, a growing part of the electorate. And then, so that's one. And the second element is that what you see now developing is a certain critique towards the EU that is very regionally focused. So you see, for example, the so-called Visegrad countries, so uh, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, opposing very much the legal order of the EU, some liberal or that they perceive as cosmopolitan policies. You see richer countries in the north, probably also like Sweden, but also like the Netherlands, where intra-EU migration and any form of migration issue is very politicized. And in the south, it's very much about economic solidarity and economic development and growth and how the euro should be organized. So what you're seeing is that you see countries and regions kind of you know, Macron this week called it a civil war. I think that's maybe a bit too strong, but that there's conflict. And so there's conflict at a time when European solutions to maybe deal with some of these issues are not very popular. And that, and that I think, is a really kind of tough position to be in as a, as a European leader or as the EU. Have you seen uh, groups forming in this, uh, in this context? Are there, who are the major players? So what you see basically is so many people, and I think also in Brussels, thought, well, when, when br with Brexit, the kind of Eurosceptic big brother is out, so it's going to be easier to integrate. But actually what you see now is that there has been a development of, uh, under the leadership of, 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 of the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, that also some smaller countries, including like the Netherlands, Sweden, Ireland, Baltic countries, are kind of who are, you know, pro-EU, but not maybe more economic integration, not a lot more political integration, are forming kind of coalitions. In um, the kind of East European countries, you see cooperation between Poland and Hungary. Uh, you see it also within the South, between uh, the kind of more struggling econo economies economically. So those are kind of regional factions. And on the other side, you basically have Macron, who is trying to develop develop a more kind of pro-EU pro vision. And Germany, that's not entirely clear how Germany thinks about that. So, yeah, you have really some regional fault lines that are, that are developing. And, uh, and Macron is actively trying to be kind of the leader and the, you know, uh, uh, the pro-EU ambassador, but he's not having many followers. So it will be interesting to see how that will develop. Mm. Uh, Juncker and the European Commission released the white papers uh, a couple of years ago a year ago, a bit more. Uh, could you use maybe the national elections happening around the Union as barometers of, of how, which the lay of the land, so to speak, in which these countries are going for these four different uh, kinds of how the European Union should work in the future? So Juncker kind of does that. So he was very kind of when the Dutch election, which was in 2017, the first one, when Geert Wilders, so the, the kind of radical right party, Eurosceptic radical right party, didn't, do, didn't win the election, which actually no Dutch commentator had predicted. But anyway, uh, that Marine Le Pen didn't become the president of France and Macron, a more pro-EU guy, won, that Merkel was still holding the fort, was kind of interpreted, well, there is this, this populist 
kind of push or this Eurosceptic push is, uh, is, um, is, uh, is, is halted. Um, but then you also saw that what well, it was very difficult to form an election uh, to form a government in, uh, in in Germany in the Netherlands there's another Eurosceptic party that has developed and it's doing extremely well it's the second now in the polls in Sweden you've had the Swedish Democrats doing extremely well and also you saw the Italian election and the Hungarian election where Eurosceptic parties won so it's a very mixed bag and I don't think that we should interpret when people vote for a mainstream party and the Eurosceptic parties don't win the election as something particularly then good for 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 Brussels because I think that that um, for example take the example of the country I know best the Netherlands Margaret Rutte won the election by basically taking up a lot of positions that were radical right positions in terms of being skeptical about immigration. I mean, he, w- he didn't take radical right positions, but he was very skeptical on immigration, skeptical on the EU, which he's now also putting forward. So in that way, at what cost were those elections won? And in that case, yeah, I, I, I think the EU is, is really needs to get used to the fact that this kind of Eurosceptic understream and critical mass will be there for quite some time to come. Uh, you presented your new book here or study on um, the challenges of Europe, Euroscepticism. Uh, do you think you talked about the alignment between uh, voters' opinions about the EU and the elites, the politicians' opinions on EU and how they differ? Do you see them coming together or further apart, or the, the politicians taking the more negative Eurosceptic alignment way, so to speak? So I think it is. So there is quite. I think there is also something fundamental going on, which Danny Roderick had, has called the trilemma of globalization, which you also can, can, can adjust to the domestic level. It's very difficult to square the state, the market, and democracy. So the EU tries to do that, um, but people are not particularly happy with some of those configurations. So you really see a difference between more cosmopolitan people that think that all these things can be squared, and maybe more cor- more parochial people. and. What you now seem to see in many domestic member states is that the more parochial, anti-EU, anti-immigration standards are growing, and mainstream parties, especially on the right, are catering towards those positions. So if if we take the last couple of years as an as an as as an indication, then if that would be a, a bridging of the gap, it will be because parties are becoming less pro-EU and are becoming more real, taking more Euro-realist stances or even Euro-critical stances. It's very difficult to know, you know, what's going to happen in the future, but um, I, I, yeah, I, I think that there is something fundamental about questions about how can we be a common market and we can have democracy and we have to have intra-EU migration. How are we going to square all these different themes that are very difficult and very difficult to 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 solve and 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 deal with at a domestic level? And this opposition towards some of those solutions that are coming out of the EU, I think, will stay for quite a while. Yeah, because you have Brexit on the one hand, which is the very like leaving the European Union, and then the European Union has to deal with everything you just said. Yeah, the the normal the normal work work day in the Union. But are, do you think many of the skeptics are like taking it easy now and waiting to see what comes out of Brexit before yes. they form an, their yes. next move? Yes, I, I I think so. I think partly it is that what you see is that some exit skeptics or some extreme skeptics have moderated their positions a little bit because Brexit does show how difficult it is to disentangle your country from the EU. However, it's not led them to be not anti-EU. And um, 
they, I think, are waiting for an opportune moment, just like the Eurozone crisis and the refugee crisis was an opportune moment to kind of criticize and vocalize uh, more skeptic positions. And the interesting element is that what people don't realize, we're in an upturn now, we're in an upswing. It's going economically quite good in many countries. And we're still dealing with an extremely anti-immigrant, anti-EU, pro-national sovereignty uh, debate. So imagine that there will be a crisis. I think that would increase. So in some ways, if I, I don't want to be kind of a very kind of pessimistic person, but if there will be another you know crisis, which it, which is bound to going to happen, um, you know I, I'm not so optimistic. But of course, Brexit has I think been a little bit of a of a of a of a of a gift for the EU in the sense that Brexit does show, for the short term, I don't know in the long term, but in the short term, it does show how difficult it is to disentangle your country. So it maybe has made people you're skeptic, but maybe not the, the, the kind of really leaving option has become a little bit less popular. Mm. How much is immigration and the fear of uh, fear of newcomers to your country a part of the Euroscepticism as a whole? But yeah. the Brexit election, you could say, was mainly about people didn't want people to come to the to the UK. So I, I think it's about, in my book, I would highlight that it depends on where you live. So if you're a Swede, if you're a Brit, if you're a Dutch person living in a country that is doing fairly well economically, high quality of government, that y- what you care about is a lot immigration, but also national control, even democracy considerations that you think that the EU is not performing well in that level. However, in Spain, immigration is not the issue why people are Eurosceptic. It's much more about economic redistribution. It's about solidarity. In, in in Greece, we've had a little bit of the same with Golden Dawn, but later on also that kind of disappeared again. So it really depends where you live. There is really a national discourse or even a regional discourse about what Euroscepticism is. And in many countries that are doing well, where also a lot of e- intra-EU migrants go to, right? Their intra-EU migration and immigration in, in, in general is a concern. But in many other countries, that's much less the case. So then you showed here on your um, on your uh, PowerPoint presentation that you're more less likely to be Eurosceptic when you have a low economical growth. So that also correlates with uh, the migration um, factor, so to speak, that if you have a high quality government, you have a great economy, you care about migration and you are Eurosceptic be- because of that, because you have to share. And in Spain, you're 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 not uh, as Eurosceptic as you are in the the more well-off countries at yeah, the moment. Yeah, no, no, that that's true, and I think partly also because they see the benefit of that that their their younger generation can go and and live somewhere else. Within Spain, you also have variation. Within Sweden or something, you would have variation. But I think within, so in some ways, that you could say that the book you have to be able to afford Euroscepticism. So to flirt with the idea of leaving. You need to be able to think that you could survive outside, i.e. that you have high quality of government enough and that you have economic kind of performance enough that also in the future you could you could you could kind of reap those kind of benefits. Mm. All right. Well thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at our little podcast. And uh, it was nice to meet you. It was very nice to meet you and thank you very much for the interest in the book. Thanks. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. Yeah, I always have the tendency to start talking very fast. I do it all the time. It is hard to get academics and researchers to speculate. And while that is probably a good thing, it is always interesting to try and predict the future. 
than there are those whose job it is to speculate, namely politicians and opinion makers. I called two opinion makers writing opinion editorials in Gothenburg's two daily newspapers, from their two different points of view. Adam Sveiman writes op-eds for the Gothenburg Post from a liberal standpoint. He was the president of the Liberal Party's youth organization for three years, ending his turn in 2012. What does he have to say about the future and the present situation? Sweden has for a long time lagged behind uh, the European uh, elections and even European party politics in general. Um, Even though Sweden has a large right-wing populist party, a stable government, relatively stable, has not had any it hasn't been challenged by the opposition but i think that's changing now um the social democrats the ruling party has in comparison with other social democrat parties for example in netherlands or in italy or in poland even uh, have started to show cracks uh, in their support um this is really changing fast in gothenburg uh, the party has in some opinion polls 13% of the vote so if they don't change this fast uh, Sweden will probably be much more like other European countries, um, meaning that the old dominant social democrat forces have been severely weakened and been replaced by either center-right parties or populist parties of different hues, either left or right-wing, which means that Sweden will become more European and less exceptional. What, what do you think would be the result on election night this fall for the Swedish election? It's hard to say what their election election result will be, although one thing is for certain that the, the Sweden Democrats, the right-wing populist party in the Swedish parliament, will be strong. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, they can't go wrong in this election, even uh, regardless of scandals or how they perform locally, they will be very strong. Uh, and the right-wing opposition, although in pieces, will probably be strong as well, at least uh, the major uh, center of right party, um, the moderate party. Do you think an agreement between uh, the social democrats and the conservative uh, moderaterna will change the political landscape in Sweden in terms of coming to an agreement on migration? Will that solve the situation that it's mainly the Sweden democrats having a big chunk in, in just today's uh, opinion polls, they had 20%. Do you see anything changing over time here? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I think it's too late to to make a dent in their support now, maybe over time. Uh, but their strong support is a result of a very long period of time when their main question, uh, immigration, was, was basically uh, not occupied by any other party. So even if the moderates and the Social Democrats should make an agreement um, just for the sake of it, because they're the dominant two parties in Sweden, at least for the moment. It's not for the sake of um, lowering the support of another party. It's because it's needed. So who will govern, do you think, this fall? Well, my job is speculation, but but I know my limits. So I'm not really sure. I think it will be the moderate moderate party with... um, some form of minority support from other parties. All right. Laila Vianden writes op-eds for the Green Left newspaper, etc. 
Only being around for one year, the daily newspaper etc. is trying to bring particularly the left side of the spectrum into the news cycle in a media landscape that in Sweden is heavily tilted to the right. Question is, is the outlook on the future and the Swedish election this fall any different from that of a liberal opinion maker? The right-wing-left-wing conflict is pretty much dead. It doesn't have any real hold on, on the opinion. And the center-left are trying to adjust by using hard rhetorics uh, on migration. And they are, well, slowly collapsing. So what I'm expecting is this continuous implosion, uh, but not into Euroscepticism at this point. What do you think will happen with the the mainstream parties on the election night? How do you think they'll turn out? Well, it's not uh, set in stone yet, but I think uh, the the implosion will continue. And it's probably going to be uh, dramatic and emotional in in many ways for for a lot of people. Uh, Probably no one's going to be very happy about the, the, the results. What do you think locally on this the social democrats in Gothenburg where we are? Do you think there's a there's a, do you think there's a connection what's happening to the social democrats in Gothenburg to what's happening to social democracy or mainstream parties all over Europe? Uh, yes, I definitely think there is a connection. It's uh, it's a bit uh, more severe here in uh, lo- locally in Gothenburg. Uh, and there is also a bit of a hard left party doing pretty well. Uh, so there is there's this left wing thing going on, <laughs> and there is also this populist center right party. But as far as I understand, they they are. Uh, taking voters mainly from right, right-wing uh, voters. Are you talking about uh, the new party? Yes, the Democraterna. The, the so who do you think will govern on election night uh, nationally in Sweden? I really don't know. It's, it's really complicated and it might be complicated even forming a government uh, without the approval from the far right. I'm a bit of a pessimist about this. <laughs> it might be impossible to form another minority left-wing government. Another main concern in in the pub- public uh, public's view is the possibility of conservatives joining forces with the far right, uh, but they would need help from the soft right. Uh, and so far, no one has been ready been ready to to do so. So I I really don't know. Uh, that's my only expectation, and the best possible outcome probably is that it could have been a lot worse. Uh, one uh, positive thing might be that the left wing gets the opportunity by necessity to develop, renew, and rethink strategies and policies for the future. Uh, my personal opinion is that this has been necessary for quite some time. 
Do you think there's any chance of uh, a coalition government between the conservative and the social democrats? The moderate party and the oh. social de democrats? Or is that totally out of the question? It would be interesting, but I don't know about the voter, their voters. Honestly, I, I, they, they are too far apart, at least economically. So then, where are we now? And where are we heading? I think a lot of people are waiting, waiting for Brussels to play a larger role, waiting for the Brits to exit the European Union and what the ramifications will be for them and the European project. But what then about those who want to reshape Europe into something else, where Brussels is playing a much smaller role, more in line with conservative, nationalistic and authoritarian states? They are not sitting around waiting. What remains of the European project after such a transformation? Let's have a look at what's going on in those countries pushing for that kind of Europe in the next episode of Radioutblick on Hungary and Poland. Thank you for listening. Yeah? So shut your fucking stupid mouths. Chatting bare fucking shit. Shut the fuck up. Shut your fucking mouth. Hey, Rubai, shut up. One time, yeah? Chatting bare fucking shit. Shut up, man.